to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. My name is Stephen. I'm the lead pastor here. So glad that you uh, came to join us this morning. Again, I mentioned that blue card at the beginning of the service. It's a connection card. We'd love for you to fill that out. We'd love to know how to get in touch with you. You can drop it in the black box in the back. And again, uh, for filling that out, we'll, we'll send you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery right down the street. And you will thank me later once you do that. It's so, so good. Uh, and then also we'll make a $5 donation uh, to a charity. We'll send you an email with a list of charities you can choose from. And uh, we'll be sure to send that in your name. Uh, Our values as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel means good news, that we were once separated from God because of our sin, because of our actions and attitudes and and choices. And God sent his own son to die in our place to restore us, to to help us come back to God so that our sins could be forgiven. And so if you've not entered into that relationship with God uh, through Jesus, I would love to talk with you about how to do that today. Find me after the service and I can share with you how to enter into that life-giving relationship. Secondly, we uh, are made for community. God created us for relationships. And so in community, uh, we have people from different different walks of life and backgrounds and experiences who come together uh, as, a, as a new people. And we live this out in community groups. Community groups meet each week during, uh, during the week and to study the Bible and encourage one another and serve and love their neighbors. So if you're not connected to a group, we'd love to get you connected. I want to fill out that yellow card and mark community groups. And then lastly, mission. God created us to join him on his mission. We have good news to tell, so we tell others about what Jesus has done for us, but we also live lives shaped by how Christ served us, so we serve our neighbors in that same way. A couple of announcements before we get into the text today. This week is our soccer camp, Soccer Nights, and we have a team from Mount Zion Baptist Church here in the back, my back left. Um, Big thank you for being here, guys. We're so excited to be with you this week. They're going to run the camp because you don't want to see me teach someone how to kick a soccer ball. Um, And so they're going to run the camp, and we as a church get the opportunity to meet and engage our neighbors. So this is vitally important. They're helping run the camp so to free us to build relationships. And so uh, teams, that's one of the best ways the teams can serve us is to free us to build relationships with neighbors that can last a long time. So I really want to challenge you to come out. Even Even if you can come out for one night this week, just come sit in the stand talk about Jesus, uh, just get to meet some of our neighbors. I can give you a story from three years ago when we got to do this. Um, My wife, Amy, who's actually, my family's out of town this week. um, She was sitting in the stands just talking with some other parents and someone literally turned to her and said, I just started reading the Bible and I started in Genesis and can you help me figure this out? And Amy's like, sure. And she's like, what what do you want to know? She said, everything, because I don't get it. And so my wife spent four nights in a row just like walking through the book of Genesis. I don't know that that's going to happen, but you can have plenty of opportunities to talk with people, get to know them and share the hope of Jesus with them. So please come out at least one night this week. Secondly, is our coming up the next week is Kids Summer Adventure, which is, it is a week away, which is amazing. Um, this is a, a week of studying the Bible, of um, kids having a good time together, having a lot of fun, playing games, and, and learning more about Jesus. So kids, it is not too late to sign up. Have your parents scan that QR code. Um, it's also not too late to volunteer. So if you have some time in the mornings, 9 to 12, we'd love for you to be a part of that as well. 
And then lastly, uh, we have our uh, Boston Housing Authority cookout coming up next Saturday, or sorry, Saturday the 30th. And so once a month, we go to Boston Housing and just bless our neighbors. We cook out, we have a jump around and get to meet some of our neighbors. So this is a great way for you to get involved. If you're looking for something to do, like low-hanging fruit, um, Come, uh, come and like, you know, man the grill or make cotton candy. We actually have a sign up on our event page, uh, coaforesthills.org slash events, where you can actually sign up for a specific role this time. So please come to be a part of that as well. Now, this morning, we're continuing a series on wisdom from the book of James, and we've titled this uh, Practical Wisdom because this is a very practical book, maybe more so than any other book in the New Testament. Um, James is wanting us to know how to live our faith out practically. It's not just enough to, to know about God, but how does our faith impact our lives? How does our faith impact our choices? And are we a people who live wisely? And, to, and wisdom, biblically, is applying God's word, his truth, to everyday life. So taking our faith and having it lived out in works. And so this is really practical. And if you've been with us in this series, you may have realized that primarily the entire book is in relation to other people. Of course, there are aspects of how we relate to God and our faith and, and, and the choices we make. And it says a lot about our hearts, but all of it is played out in relationship. Almost all of it is in how we treat other people and we see this in the way that we, how we treat the poor, how we serve other people, the words that we use, all these are shaped and we need wisdom to know how to enter into these parts of relationships. And last week we looked at how any relationship can lead to conflict. We see at the beginning of chapter four, this is what causes quarrels and what causes fights among you. Every relationship has conflict. Every relationship will have quarrels and disagreements. And in fact, I believe even if you're in a healthy relationship, you will have conflict because you are in a relationship with another sinner. You're in a friendship with another person who is living in a fallen and broken world. There will be conflict. And so what James is telling us is we need to understand how do we live these things out? How do we help ourselves know how to be wise when it comes to money and how we serve and the words we use and, and all, all of these other things? Good relationships are going to face conflict. They're going to face hurts, and they're able to do so and face these disagreements because people have the ability to apologize. If you're in a friendship or a relationship and you never apologize to somebody, you're not being very honest. You're either not talking about the conflicts you're having, or you just haven't been in a relationship long enough to have a fight. We need to learn to be people who know how to apologize when we're wrong, but the problem is, is we are really bad at saying sorry. We are people who just really struggle to say sorry. In fact, we overuse the word sorry. You know, if I breathe the oxygen, you were going to breathe, like, oh, I'm, just, I'm so sorry. I didn't mean to breathe that. In fact, the New York Times said that on average, a person will say sorry over 2,900 times a year. That means eight times a day you are telling people sorry. And we use this word sorry for all sorts of reasons. We use it to express condolences, like someone loses a loved one. We say, I'm sorry. Um, we say, I'm sorry if, if, if we make a mistake or we're a little delayed on an email. Uh, and it's kind of become like the word um. It's kind of a filler word. And this article actually said that one woman, she would uh, actually put, a, a, had a, a web browser filter on her computer that would alert her every time she said the word sorry in a work email. We say the word sorry so much, and one of the anecdotes of this, that this um, or one of the uh, antidotes of this that this article suggested is we just should just stop saying sorry altogether. We should just stop apologizing. But the problem is, is that it's not healthy to do that either. Sometimes we need to apologize. 
And as we looked at last week, the root to all of these quarrels, the root to all of these problems and disagreements that we have with other people really boil down to two things. It boils down to jealousy, I deserve what you have, and selfish ambition, that I must have what you have at any cost. And that leads to all sorts of fights and all sorts of issues and all sorts of hurts. And so what James is telling us is that to be truly wise, we need to see that we're capable of all of that. But that jealousy and selfish ambition is something inside of us. It's not that somebody else makes us jealous. That says something about our hearts. It's not just that that thing will satisfy us, but there's, there's something twisted inside of us that looks for satisfaction in something that we think if we just attain it will make us feel like we're finally enough. That's inside of us, and we also have to learn how to say that we're sorry. What does it mean to to be a person who asks for forgiveness and is a person who's willing to grant forgiveness? And in a relationship, when when we fight and it's kind of shot through with jealousy and selfish ambition, the way to deflate that is to be a person who knows how to say you're sorry. It's like a pressure release valve. The Bible calls this repentance. And repentance is more than just simply saying, I'm sorry or apologizing. It literally means to turn, to, to turn away to turn away from one thing to another. So to turn away from a focus on myself to the offended party, uh, turning away from my own jealousy to genuine care, from selfish ambition to considering the other person first. So we have to be a people, if we want to be wise people, who know how to repent. So how do we figure that out? How do we learn how to repent? Well, the way we do this, we need to discover how God helps us apologize when we offend him. The way to uh, to repent to others is shaped by how we repent to God. So we can call today's message a, call, a guide to repentance. And we're going to be looking at three ideas that we're going to unpack today. First of all, why we repent. Secondly, how to repent. And then thirdly, the goal of repentance. So let's first look at why we repent. James, at the beginning of this, really has a very gentle way. He's a real ray of sunshine uh, there in verse 4. In fact, I backed our reading up to verse 3 to just not be so shocking. Uh, He says, you ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. We need to be people who ask for forgiveness. And then he starts in verse 4, you adulterous people. Now this morning, you may have been coming to church hoping for an uplifting message. Uh, You needed some encouragement. You were hoping maybe for something from the Psalms about love, and you got this. Uh, There is a word for us here this morning. What, what is James saying? Is he saying that everyone in this church is struggling with adultery? That's not what he's saying. What James is getting at is a key theme in his letter, and it's this. God wants your whole life. God wants your whole heart. He wants everything about you. And what he's saying to these people and what he's saying to us is that when you sin, when you struggle, when you, when you struggle to obey God, when you live according to your own wisdom and you live according to the wisdom of the world, that this is akin to spiritual adultery. That you're actually being unfaithful to the God who loves us, who brought us to himself. And we see this picture throughout the Old Testament where God calls the nation of Israel his bride. It says in Isaiah 54, for your maker is your husband, the Lord of hosts is his name, and the Holy One of Israel is your redeemer. The God of the whole earth he has called. For the Lord has called you like a wife, deserted and grieved in spirit, like a wife of youth, 
when she is cast off, says your God. You've got to understand the context there that a woman who had been cast off, a woman who was disgraced, a woman who had been left by her husband would have been completely and utterly helpless and unprotected. And so the, the picture here is of God coming and rescuing as a husband the nation of Israel and bringing her to a place of honor in himself. And we see this multiple times throughout the Old Testament, but we also see the Hebrew people, the nation of Israel, constantly being unfaithful to God. And the clearest picture of this is in the book of Hosea. Hosea was a prophet, and God led him to marry a woman named Gomer, who was a prostitute. The name Gomer should have been a dead ringer. Something was off at the beginning. But you'll see a lot of babies being named Gomer today. I can understand that. But Hosea marries Gomer, a prostitute, and she's unfaithful to him repeatedly. And we see this become an object lesson that the nation of Israel was chasing after other idols and other false gods. And so what James is saying here is that friendship with the world is really spiritual adultery. And you might be wondering, well, well, can't we just have friends? What's the big deal with having friends? If you're married, can you not have friends who are the opposite gender? But what he's describing here is more than an acquaintance, more than somebody you talk to at work. He's describing someone that you've crossed the line with. In fact, Aristotle's understanding of friendship in the ancient world was two souls in one body. What's being described here is a a uniting with the world. It's it's ideas, it's values and practices that contradict with God and his word. Now, that doesn't mean everything in the world is bad. We believe in common grace. There are good things in every culture that we can embrace. We think there are things that need to be redeemed. We believe there are things that just need to be outright rejected. And what James is saying is that there are certain things that need to be rejected that you really just can't do And you can't be a friend of the world and say that you're being faithful to God. You can't do these things or believe these things or live this way when they're so contrary to who God is because the world's ways and God's ways are irreconcilable. They are like oil and water. And he's been saying this the entire series, the entire letter. He said back in chapter two, look, you can't discriminate against people. You can't look down on people because they make less money than you. You can't treat them poorly and treat others who make money well because you're, you're not treating them as God treats or God sees us. You can't speak terribly about other people when, when, when you're envious of them. You, you can't be jealous and be, be selfish. You can't give yourself to selfish and destructive desires because it's confusing. You say that you love God, but you live in a way that you love other things. And we see it in chapter, sorry, verse four, uh, uh, chapter four, verse eight. Toward the begin, toward the end, he calls them double-minded people. You double-minded. In other words, you are like two-souled. You're, you're saying you love God, but you keep doing things that say you love someone else. It's confusing. It's like being a Red Sox fan and you're walking through New York City and you decide to put on a New York New York Yankees hat. I couldn't even get that out of my mouth. I almost wanted to throw up. Like, guess that seems completely, like, why would, who would ever do that? You, you can only love one or the other. And in verse 5, James kind of jolts us. He says in verse 5, if, if calling us an adulterous people didn't get our attention, uh, he says, or do you suppose it is, not, is, it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealous, or jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? He's saying, do you see how your choices are making light of God's love for you? Do you not remember the scriptures? And when he talks about the scriptures here, he's talking about the entire Old Testament teaching of God's jealousy over his people, that he wants us. Now, we talked last week about how jealousy is bad, 
And so how can God be jealous and still be considered a good God? Well, for us, jealousy is bad because our desires are all mixed up with all sorts of false motive and and selfishness and a need to prove ourselves. But notice that it doesn't say that God is jealous of us. It says that God is jealous over us. There's, There's nothing about us that God would be jealous of. What does God need from us? He needs nothing. But he's jealous over us. He's jealous for us. And what this means is that he wants us. He wants you. He wants all of you. And he's not going to settle for less. He wants your whole heart, your whole life, all of your affections. He wants you to love him like he loves you. And he, in his jealousy, wholly seeks your good. He's wholly passionate about you. And what this means is that God is just never meh about you. God is never, there's never a middle ground with him. And so when you sin against him, you give yourself to something else, to some other lover, you fail to love him as he loves you. Doug Moo says that he wants us to see sin for what it is. It's a breach, a serious breach in our relationship with a loving heavenly father, a breach that if not healed can lead to both temporal and spiritual disaster. We repent because we realize that we've hurt and offended another person that we've hurt another who, who deserves to be treated differently. And it gets even deeper when you realize how much that person has loved you. Deuteronomy 7 describes how, how and why God called the people of Israel and also why he called us. It says, The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasure possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you, uh, that it, Sorry, it was not because you were more in number than any, other peop- than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you, for you were the fewest of all peoples, but it is because the Lord loves you. Let me paraphrase that for you. He loves you simply because he loves you. He loves you simply because he loves you. And this is why the picture of Christ's love for the church is a beautiful picture that's shown in marriage. In marriage, you say, I'm going to forsake all other people. I'm going to forsake all other lovers. I'm going to cut my options off, and I'm saying, I am yours. And so we repent because we fail to love God with our whole hearts because we've looked at other options. We've entertained other lovers. And so repentance is to turn away from those back to God alone. And it's not just committing to stop doing bad things, but it's reorienting our hearts and love towards the Lord. Now, how does this impact the way that we say that we're sorry or repent to other people? Well, we admit that we were focused on loving ourselves more than we were the other person. That we really didn't have their best interest at heart. That when we fail to be patient with our roommate or our spouse, that we really were just thinking about us and failing to love them. That we just maybe admit that we're used to getting what we want and it really upset me when I didn't get what I wanted. Now, Paul, or I'm sorry, James very quickly shifts from the why to the how. So secondly, let's look at how to repent. Verse 6, right at the beginning, gives us the assurance of why we can repent, how we can repent, and why we can believe that we will be forgiven. It says at the beginning of verse 6, but he gives more grace. He gives more grace. Now, notice it doesn't say that Okay, now that you've gotten all your stuff together, 
Now that you, you've promised to be better, now that you, you've, you've shown some improvement, you get grace. It says, but in the midst of your running after other lovers, you get more grace. It's amazing, isn't it? And it's his jealous love that drives this. J.A. Moyder says that it tells us that God is tirelessly on our side. He never falters in respect of our needs. He always has more grace at hand for us. He is never less than sufficient. He always has more and yet more to give. There's this part in the book of Isaiah where it says that God is waiting to be gracious. You get the picture of God standing on his toes, just waiting for us to return. He's standing at the ready to give it. And this is most clearly seen in the parable of the prodigal son where the son asks for his inheritance because he's just, he's out, he's done, he's tired of listening to dad's rules. He's basically wishing his father dead. He takes his money, he goes out, lives it up, goes broke. This is like the too long, didn't read version of this, goes broke, realizes that he'd made a terrible mistake and he says, maybe I can go home and dad will let me work the family business. And he goes home and this is a part of the story I think we often miss is that the father runs out to him at the road Now, what does that mean about what the father was doing? He was watching. He was waiting. He was ready to give his son grace. The moment that his son wanted to return, he wanted to restore him. Now, did that son deserve forgiveness? No, that's the point of grace. It's a gift that you and I do not deserve, yet God gives it Anyway, and this is really key to understanding why and how we repent, that it humbles us. The grace of God should humble us because we're given something we don't deserve. So the first aspect of repentance is you have to be humble. You have to be humble. The end of verse 6 says, Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. He opposes the proud. He opposes those who don't think they need grace in the first place but gives it to those who will give themselves to him. He'll give as much as you could possibly give if you'll submit yourself to him. And he uses the word at the beginning of verse seven, he says, submit yourself. So in humility, submit yourselves, therefore, to God. This is the language of surrender. Be like imagine imagine a battle of two armies and one army is completely outmatched and they realize we're like, we're cooked, we're done. This is not gonna end well for us. We've got to surrender. When they surrender, they don't start making demands. They don't say, yeah, we'll surrender, but we'd like a really nice cozy room. They don't get to do that. They surrender to whatever terms the the conquering army gives them. And in the same way, when we submit to God, we don't come on our own terms. We, We don't get to keep control because we realize I don't want control in the first place. I'm really bad at being in control of my own life. It's not working out real well for me. I want you, God, to be in control. Now, notice like the flip side of submitting. It's almost like two sides of the same coin. The end of verse seven, it says, submit yourself therefore to, the, uh, therefore to God, resist the devil and he will flee from you. Our humbling ourselves before God is also paired with resisting the devil. Now, what do these two things have to do with each other? I really believe that the period right after you realize you've sinned, right after you realize you've really messed up, may be the most vital point for you when it comes to repentance. Because I believe that's when you're the most tender. I believe that's when you're the most vulnerable. That's when you see your sin the most clearly, but that's also the most dangerous point because that's the point where Satan will begin to start puffing up your pride again. 
And we have to resist the devil because what Satan will start doing is he'll say, you know what? You're not, it wasn't that bad. It, it wasn't that big of a deal. I mean, honestly, he really deserved it. I mean, look at how she treats you. Like, they just don't understand the stuff that you're going through. Satan will begin to puff you up with all of those lies. And what we do when we repent, it's an opportunity to believe the gospel. It's an opportunity to believe that the sin that led us to do that thing is the very sin that will convict, uh, convince us that we can get it all together on our own. But Jesus gives us more and more grace. So we need to be humble, but also we need to seek to restore a relationship. Whenever you have a disagreement with somebody, you've created relational distance. And what do you have to do in order to apologize? You have to close the gap. Verse 8 says, draw near to God. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. What is that? that? That's worship. Repentance is ultimately an act of worship. It's an act of submitting ourselves before God, admitting that we're not enough and that he alone is good. And the Bible over and over and over again uses the language of repenting and drawing near in worship to God. And so my question for you is, what are you doing to draw near to God? And there are really only a few things. This this is ancient. This is like thousands of years old. There's no magic bullet. and, And all that really all around this is just all the resources you see in like a Christian bookstore or online or Amazon are really just fancy ways of doing these three things. It's the Bible, prayer, and silence and solitude. That's it. Those are the, really the only three things that we are called to do to draw near to God. Because what are all of those? All of those are submitting ourselves humbly before him. They're, all of those are resisting pride. What do we do? We just talked about it a few minutes ago. When we come and we read the scriptures and we sit underneath the scriptures, what are we doing? We're submitting. We're saying, God, I don't get to dictate what's true. I submit myself to your word. And so whether you're reading three verses or three chapters, come and submit yourself before the Lord. What, what is prayer? It's saying, I, I can't do this alone, God. I need you to work in my life. What, what is silence and solitude? It's saying, I'm going to stop and trust God that you are at work when I'm not. And all of those are vitally important when we repent, because when we repent, often what we start to do is we start making promises to do better next time. We say, God, I'm going to earn your love back by just doing more and trying harder, but the call of the gospel is to come and rest and believe that our good works are not enough. And notice what God does. It says that he draws near to us. He draws unto the humble, those who admit their need for grace. And it's a returning to our first love. Jackie Hill Perry says that repentance is not negative. Repentance will always lead to worship and reverence where we were created to be. The next part of repentance is a commitment to change. Repentance does lead to changed actions. And there are two parallel statements that James gives us. He says, draw near to God, or sorry, sorry, the second half, cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. We see this parallel statement that we have our hands, our outward actions, and our heart, our inward disposition. What truly shows that you're sorry? You change. You realize that you've hurt another person, and you change. And when it comes to God, you realize that your sin is an offense against the God who made you, and you want to be different, and you want to to not just avoid bad actions, not just avoid doing wrong, but actually do things to show that you love him. See, repentance 
reframes this because it's not just avoiding sin, but it's seeking ways to please God. And we actually see this in relationship with other people. When we offend them, it's not just that we stop offending them. We figure out how we can love them best. I've known Matt Walder for 10 years. I was telling Kevin from Mount Zion about this earlier. Um, I've known Matt Walder for 10 years. Um, He's led worship. We've become best friends through all of this. We've had disagreements. We've had fights. uh, We've hurt each other. You know, now what is, what is being a good friend to him? Is it simply just not trying to make him mad? Is it simply just staying away from the things that upset him? No, it's discovering what actually brings him joy. It's discovering what actually makes him happy, knowing what he likes to do, and then leaning into those things. The gospel actually reshapes why we obey. And we see this in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says that he wants heart-level love for him that's expressed in action. So we, we submit ourselves to God, or submit, oh, we submit ourselves to Him, we humble ourselves, um, we restore a relationship, we commit to change, and then lastly, you have to own it. You have to own it. Verse 9, just some, uh, some very uplifting, a very uplifting verse. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. What that means is that you don't justify your sin. You, you don't make excuses. You, you don't explain it away. You don't make light of it. It means you deal with it. And it means that you weep because your sin caused hurt to another person. It means that you show sorrow and gloom because it, it, that's what happens when you sin. And what it means is that our response should match the offense. And so when we sin against God, we realize that it should affect us because we're not just brushing off the fact that we sinned against a God who loved us. It's actually saying, God, I'm sorry that I've offended you and I'm, I'm, I'm truly, truly repentant. And when it comes to the way that we do this with each other, we model this. I believe this is actually a way that City on a Hill can show Jesus to Boston because what would happen if we were people who really, truly embodied grace? We were a people who who gave more and more and more, that we extended forgiveness and we received and asked for forgiveness. This is what the gospel culture we talk about all the time. And you know it's getting in when people start to really believe this. The last church that I led in Birmingham, I knew that this was kind of getting into the water when I had two people come up to me. And I have people come up to me when they're in a disagreement sometimes, but they came up to me after the fight, not in the middle of it. They weren't, I wasn't trying to be like Solomon in the Old Testament, trying to decide who was right and who was wrong. Like, they were like, hey, we had a fight. We had a disagreement, a pretty deep one. We just wanted to let you know how we made this right, how we applied the gospel to this. Because the reality is, is in a church, we're going to mess up friendships sometimes. We're going we're we're to make mistakes. But we live in a city where if you were to tell your unbelieving friends, they might say, well, wait, wait, what happened? Wait, what? That's a toxic person and you need to cut them out of your life. You just need some new friends. But one of the most effective ways that we can show Jesus to Jamaica Plain and Roslindale and Roxbury and Dorchester and all the neighborhoods around Forest Hills is that we learn how to say we're sorry. And we are people who repent and give and receive forgiveness. And what they begin to say is, wait a minute, they, they actually forgive each other. They, they say sorry when they were t- focused on getting in their own way. They don't, they don't gaslight or justify, they just own it. And one of the most effective things you can do in a fractured relationship, and you might have this in your life right now, one of the most disarming things that you can possibly do is just admit your own part and say, this is the part that I messed up on. Who do you need to forgive? Who do you need to seek forgiveness from? It might even be somebody within this congregation. 
True wisdom is being able to do so. So to recap, how we repent is to be humble, we seek to restore a relationship, we commit to change, and we own it. But lastly, I want to talk about the goal of repentance. The ultimate goal of repentance is being made right with God. We see this in verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. The Lord never leaves the humble low for long. And so what happens when we submit ourselves, we resist the devil, we draw near, we commit to change, we own it? It says he exalts you. It means he's inviting you to enjoy him and to find joy in him in a new way. And what he's saying here is that there is something worth humbling yourself for. There's something worth giving up friendship with the world over. And the question he's asking is, is are you willing to do that? Are you willing to give up getting success at all costs? Are you willing to give up love or intimacy that doesn't honor God? Are you willing to give up your right to be right in an argument? And some of us, we know that friendship with the world is killing us. And we're self-medicating and trying to numb ourselves to get past it. But we need to realize this. God is not holding out on you. God is is not holding out on you. In fact, here it says he will exalt you. And so what it's telling us is to seek after him. So let's say that you go on Facebook Marketplace and you find a car for sale here here in JP. And you go check it out and you, you open the trunk and you find a collection of diamonds in this trunk unlike anything that you've ever seen. You see it in there, and let's assume that the diamonds weren't stolen and they were ethically sourced. Just, this guy just happened to have a bunch of diamonds. They come with the car. What would you do? You would immediately buy that car. Immediately. It didn't matter what the car looked like because the treasure of what was inside would be worth it. And you might be thinking, man, I just don't have enough money. You would go sell everything that you own to get that car. That's what Jesus tells us life with God is like. Life with God is unimaginably satisfying and rich and joyful, but it's going to mean that you have to give up your current life in order to get it. That God is waiting with riches that were bought for you by Jesus, but it's going to cost you everything. And James is saying that if you you don't take your sin seriously in this life, you will in the next. And if you laugh and live carefree now, you'll weep and you'll mourn later. But in Jesus, there's a treasure to be found. Let's pray.